All right, welcome to the show, Tyler Anderson. Today we've got a special guest, uh, minor league pitching coach with the Los Angeles Angels, uh, joining us today from in Missouri. Is this uh, is this where you're at today? Yeah, I appreciate you for uh, having me. I am currently in the Nixon, Missouri, small town Missouri. That's awesome. I'm in small town Maine, so this is uh, this is pretty good that we got to connect and and speaks to kind of the power of social media. Uh, Tyler reached out after uh, seeing one of the heat map things that I created and uh, kind of went off from there. So I hope hope this conversation uh, goes well. We'll kind of just see what happens and uh, go for there. So so welcome aboard. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So uh, just reading some backstory and trying to um, you know follow along with your journey. Uh, I saw originally from Australia and, and came over to play college baseball in the United States. You want to talk a little bit what uh, what that was like? Yeah, so I'm originally from Perth, Australia, the the uh, west coast. It's opposite from all the cities that everybody knows: Sydney, Melbourne, Queensland. So uh, I think it's the most isolated capital city in the world. So um, pretty cool place to grow up, right on the beach. Um, cool little city. Uh, I left there when I was 17 to go to Glendale Community College in Arizona. I spent a year there before transferring to Southeastern in Iowa and then ended up at an NAI school in Missouri, uh, William Woods University. So kind of been all over the place, little Juco baseball, little NAI baseball. Um, But yeah, really cool experience for me coming from Australia and then never went home. So That's pretty awesome. Even uh, just to jump around like as much as you did, that's that's a pretty intense, you know, pretty intense leap from somebody coming across the world to, to the United States and, and sticking here. And so um, what was, what was baseball like kind of in Australia? You know, it's, it's kind of you know, emerged as Liam Hendricks has come to rise here and you kind of hear um, more about it, just whispers of you, know, the Australian league, that sort of stuff. So what, what kind of is baseball like out there? Yeah, Liam, actually, Liam's a really good friend of mine. We grew up together. He's a year younger than uh, me, and he's from Perth. So we grew up playing baseball together since we were uh, probably seven or eight years old. Um, Played the whole way through high school level. And then uh, he signed with the Twins when he was 16, I think, 17, um, and and went on to minor league baseball. But, uh, yeah, growing up in Australia is very different baseball. There's no high school baseball. It's all club baseball. Um, so we would play, we practice once a week and we play once a week and that's it. So the amount of talent that's come out of Australia is crazy. Um, the amount of big leaguers that have been produced with how little baseball we play is, is really, really crazy. Um, but it was cool. We, we have like a men's league, uh, which was our best league before the Australian baseball league was started. So we grew up kind of playing club ball and then your club would have a men's league. Um, and when you get to probably 15 or 16 years old and you're, you're decent, you're usually good enough to play in the men's league. Uh, so you're playing with some ex-professional guys, some ex-Olympians, guys like that are still sticking around in the men's league. And I think that's helped a lot of the Australian kids when they go to college because they grew up playing with men and they grew up playing with guys that played professionally. And uh, I think that's been a, a big help for a lot of the Australian kids that end up going to college there a little more advanced, even though they've played way less games. So um, for a lot of the Australian kids, going to junior college is huge because you start to lift, you start to throw, you start to get on a schedule and do this stuff over and over. And 
a lot of the Australian kids blossom because they haven't they haven't done that. They practice once a week and they played once a week, so they're they're really far behind in terms of games played compared to the American kids. But they, they have a bunch of tools. So if they go to junior college, you usually see those guys kind of uh, thrive and go into four year schools or get drafted. Uh, but yeah, very very different growing up in Australia than growing up here, baseball wise. That's pretty intense. I I didn't know the extent of you know, like you say, it's all travel ball and, you know, club baseball, that sort of stuff. Like the, the amount of time that you get to spend on baseball, it seems like, you know, it, it's almost kind of just a hobby at that point, you know, you're still a part of the team and doing all the games and stuff, but uh, it kind of just forces you to, to be an athlete, I feel like, and just, you know, play just to play. And if, you know, you, you get the instruction from, you know, the being around the ex pro guys. And I think, the environment that you're in is probably uh, at least a college level atmosphere at age 15 and 16. Some of the stuff that you could pick up from those guys must, must be just amazing. Yeah, it's huge. I think it helps out guys a lot. Um, especially just with the amount of games we play. That, that's the biggest thing. We just don't play enough. Um, kids here just play year round and the travel ball and then they go to high school baseball and and the Australian kids playing once a week, and then they may play in some national tournaments and stuff like that. But we probably play 40, 50 games a year max um, for the full year. So, and then kids go play Australian football and cricket and, and a bunch of other sports. And I think, like, if you look at, at Liam Hendricks, he could have been a first round pick in Australian football. Um, his dad is a Australian football scout, I believe, and he was one of the better players. Um, in Australia at that time, it's lucky he uh, he picked baseball because a lot of the Australian kids don't pick baseball. The, the most talented athletes don't. Um, but he's a lucky one that did. He ended up being an all-star in the big leagues. Yeah, and I would imagine that paycheck is uh, looking pretty yeah, good. Yeah, he's, right he's done okay for himself. So Absolutely. That's pretty amazing. Like, uh, that sort of reminds me, I know I'm uh, biased to Northeast baseball with growing up in Maine, and um, really the season is pretty limited and myself personally, just playing three sports kind of all the way up growing up was, you know, if it's the fall, it's, you know, soccer season, football season, winter time. Okay. It's definitely not baseball season. We're going in the gym, we're playing basketball, hockey, whatever. Uh, so I feel like the multi-sport stuff kind of contributes to a lot of things. I, I'm biased to it because that's kind of how I did it growing up. And, um, but I feel like at, at least for, from an overall development standpoint, people that do more things and just kind of the overall just be athletic and like with Liam Hendricks as an example, playing multiple sports. And uh, I think sometimes that gets overlooked, especially in the United States where uh, there's so much specialization so early, you know, the travel ball, at least in warm weather areas, you're playing hundreds and hundreds of games, like Thanksgiving tournaments, Christmas tournaments, like that is not even a thought in the Northeast or any kind of cold weather climate. So just to hear the, the Australians with the beaches and all this, like super nice weather to hear that you guys didn't play all that much. It's a surprise to me, but uh, like you said, overall the whole time you've got cricket, you've got the Australian football, but it seems yes. like it's expanding a little bit at least. The, the crazy part, it's a huge sporting country. Like they love sport more than anything in the world. They'll get 80,000 people to a football game. And I think Australian baseball suffers a little bit from that because the best athletes in Australia don't play baseball. Um, 
because there's no popularity, there was no league. Um, but I think that's starting to switch a little bit. It'll never be bigger than cricket or football or anything like that. But I think it's it's starting to grow in popularity. The ABL has been huge. Um, they've had some really good players come through there in the last 10 years. Um, they've added a team from Korea. They've added a team from New Zealand. They're starting to get it on TV and expand. Um, it's probably still only high A to double A level competition. And they probably get similar crowds, probably 2,000 to 3,000 people on a good night. Um, but it is growing. And there are some good players going through there. Um, this past year I was there. Um, Delman Young was there. Peter Moylan was there. Wow. A bunch of old old big leaguers. Pete Cosmo was on our team. Um, guys floating around with World Series rings. Um, Shane Robinson. So there's some good players going through there. Uh, and it's growing. And I think it's really going to grow with the, uh, the coronavirus thing going on now depending on, on how many games are played in the minor leagues or big leagues or if they play at all. Um, I think the winter leagues are going to be huge this offseason for guys to get at-bats and throw innings. So they could see a lot of a lot of top prospects head to Australia, hopefully. That would be pretty awesome. And are you you're still uh, going to go back and coach the Perth Heat this, this coming offseason? At this point, no. Um, it all kind of lined up last year. My wife had uh, – we had just had a kid. We were moving from Arizona to Missouri. So she quit her job. We didn't have a house because we were moving. So everything kind of lined up for us to go back there for three months. Um, I was able to live at my mom's house and, and take both of my kids over who most of my family hadn't met yet. So it was cool, but it's probably a one-time deal. But who knows? If there's no baseball, who knows? Man, because that, uh, even as on a personal note, that sounds pretty pretty awesome experience to even bring the whole family back out there and, and get to play some baseball and coach some baseball and uh, I even saw in your resume there that you got to uh, coach the U18 Australian team. Uh, you know, can you speak on that a little bit and kind of the national team atmosphere? And uh, you guys had some pretty competitive games with, you know, I saw Team Japan on there and uh, kind of what was that like, the, the whole national Yeah, that was, that was a couple of years ago. Um, I was an assistant at St. Louis University at the time. Um, so I was living in St. Louis and uh, one of my old coaches, Steve Fish, was the, the head coach for the national team. Um, so I, I was able to get on that staff. I drove up to Toronto from St. Louis. Uh, we spent a week or so in Toronto, um, scrimmage with Team Canada every day. I think we played seven games total uh, before the World, uh, the World Cup started. And then we drove to, to Thunder Bay uh, where we had the World Cup. Really cool experience. Um, it was crazy because a bunch of those kids that are on the under 18 team are now playing the ABL. So when I was back there this year, uh, we had, I think two or three of those guys on, on my team and then a bunch on the teams we were playing. So to see those kids from three years ago now developed and they're all pro guys and playing the minor league system and now playing in the ABL was, was cool. But yeah, the experience, we almost beat team Japan. We lost an extra innings to the number one team in the world. Um, we, Team USA had like Kumar Rocker at the time, a bunch of big time prospects uh, wow. to see those kids was cool. Team Canada was loaded. Um, so yeah, it was really fun just to see all the different types of baseball and the way, the way baseball's played all over the world. Um, and just being able to compete with those guys with, with the kids we have from Australia. Like I said, we don't play a ton, but the one thing that Australians kind of do is play hard. Um, they play harder than anybody else. So we always have a chance to win just because we kind of will ourselves to win. Um, 
we're, we're definitely less talented, but we, we just play hard in general. That's pretty neat. Is there a specific style of baseball that you would say the Americans play compared to Japan or kind of, is there like a, um, you know, what the world stage there, you kind of got to see a little bit of everything is, can you speak on a little different style that America has? Like watching Japan take infield outfield may be one of the best things I've ever seen to this day in coaching. It was every throw was on the money. Like they were yelling, they were screaming. If throw was slightly off, they would all yell at the guy. Like they'd all throw their hands in the air. Um, it was perfect. It was like the most perfect infield outfield and it was like enjoyable to watch. And then you got to be like, oh, like now we have to play these guys. Um, so they play, they play us like their fundamentals are perfect. They do everything. They field the ball, they throw the ball, um, they can bunt, they hit and run, they put balls in play, they throw strikes. Um, they have advanced feel for off speed pitches for young kids, seven, 16, 17 year olds. Um, the Americans play more of a traditional style of baseball, um, more power than, than some of the Asian teams. Um, the Koreans are more physical than most of the Asian countries. Um, they, they usually hit for, for more power compared to Japan and Taipei. And, um, so yeah, everybody does everything a little bit, a little bit differently. Um, the Australians try to play a style like the Americans, but we're just not as physical. Um, we're not in the weight room as much, so we, we can't match the, the physical, um, attributes that, the U.S. teams have, and we don't have the velo in the mouth. Like, we have guys throwing 84, 85, maybe a little more than that, but they know how to pitch and they know how to spin it and and just compete. So, yeah, seeing all the countries, it's really cool. That's pretty neat, too, and and I'm sure, you know, as the years kind of go by, you'll you'll start to see some of those names. Like, I know a Kumar Rocker will be a top yeah. year coming up soon. You know, so you'll I'm sure you'll be able to remember some of the more names as they yeah. – come up in a few more years that's going to be I'm pretty sure every kid from that team usa went to a big time program or got drafted highly or uh, something like that uh, i know that the kid from team canada i think was sarantola he's at um, mississippi state i believe yeah. he's a pretty good pretty good prospect at this point so we saw him last a lot of good players yeah a lot of good players that's pretty sweet and and talking about sarantola at mississippi state we we uh, at Maine played them last year, and uh, it was kind of a weird series for us. We um, kind of had pitchers coming all over the place. It was early, so we had, you know, a couple of pitch counts for starters, that sort of stuff. So uh, we got rolled a couple games, but it got real tight in the third game, and they brought in this beanpole righty, like 6'6", and it was Sarantola from Canada, and uh, we didn't really have anything reported on him. And we watched the first pitch go by in warmups, and we're like, that was pretty firm. Like, he's the real deal. Okay. And then the next one goes by, and we're like, damn. And look up at the board, and it's 97. And we're like, uh, this kid, I mean, they're like, no innings this season so far. Like, it's, it's legit. The kind of baseball that you see at those Power Five schools and even on that national level, like, that, you know, it's something special. For sure. And even like uh, we were talking earlier before before we got on the podcast about uh, kind of the Northeast baseball, and uh, you were an assistant coach at Dartmouth for a little while. Uh, there's there's definitely a main connection with uh, the coaching staff up there. So uh, it was pretty neat uh, for me, at least, to to kind of connect and and see you know the the Northeast baseball sort of expands everywhere. 
Uh, and, you know, during your time at Dartmouth, was there uh, sort of something you saw, you know, it's Ivy League baseball and all that. Um, you know, was there something development wise that you guys tried to really nail in and, and kind of establish? I know with the Northeast, it's usually cold and, uh, you know, pitching is at a premium. You know, it's usually the pitchers get a little bit better advantage with the cold and the ball's not traveling as far. Was there something uh, when you were there coming from all the way Australia to New Hampshire that you kind of instilled in your pitchers? Yeah, it was, it was different for sure. Um, the Ivy League is really, really good baseball. Um, it's not what I fully expected when I got there. Um, I think every single team has at least one or two guys that are legit prospects and probably top 10 to 15 rounders. Um, I know I think we had probably three guys on that staff that went in the top 10 rounds. Um, but it's preparing for the season is very different. You're stuck indoors. You're throwing the guys indoors. Um, and then the pitchers traditionally get better as the season goes on because they start to throw more and throw more innings and, and get some feel being outdoors. Um, but they do have that advantage early in the year, too, with the cold. Um, well, it should be an advantage. Sometimes guys struggle with the cold. But um, at Dartmouth, it's, they, uh, they have a program built on throwing strikes. Like, again, the guys don't have the best stuff. There's probably one or two guys, three guys on the staff that have really good stuff. And then it kind of trickles down from there. Um, there's not a ton of depth. But guys can spin it and they can throw strikes and that's kind of been a philosophy at Dartmouth for a long time um and we kind of did that just by um being able to have good fastball command uh, and that's something we preached every single day through catch play or bullpens or it just wasn't acceptable to not be able to throw your fastball for a strike um, and I think having that philosophy guys figure out how to do it um we would look at deliveries and try and change deliveries and stuff if we needed to, to, to accomplish that, or if a guy couldn't throw strikes. Um, but just the everyday philosophy of, of pounding the strike zone and giving yourself a chance. We probably had um, one of the better defenses in the country for the couple of years that I was there. And um, I think we're in the top 10 in, in walks per nine. So we didn't walk anyone. We made teams footballs in play and we had really good defense and that's, it's kind of a recipe they've had there for a long time and it's worked. Um, guys like Kyle Hendricks, they've had a bunch of draft picks out of there. Um, they've been really successful with the philosophy they have. Um, it's not about huge velo. Uh, if we could do that and if we can produce that, that's great. But for the most part, it was pitchability and, and developing changeups, developing other pitches and being able to throw strikes. That's pretty awesome. And, and just to think that, you know, uh, you, you don't have to blow everybody away with, with velocity. And something that really stuck out to me was, you know, with the fastball command stuff, just being in the zone in general. Like uh, my freshman year pitching coach, uh, he said, you want to know how good you are? You know, be in the zone with all your stuff. You know, you'll find out if, if your stuff's good. It, they're either going to hit it or they're not. And even as a pitcher, you have the advantage of, you know, three, four out of ten times the guy's going to get a hit if the guy's really good and if the guy's not really good, you're going to win eight out of 10 times, you know? So uh, I think the fastball command for me, that's where it all starts. And, and even with the, the younger kids that I'm trying to, to coach and, and kind of look at just their development as a whole, you know, for, it usually starts with fastballs for me. And um, you know, some guys traditionally want to throw more two seamers so they can see it run or whatever. But um 
I, I try to drill the, the command first. And, and there's a difference between command and control too. Control is you're throwing it and it's in the zone. You know, that box, it's in the box. Yep, I've got control of it. But the difference is, you know, the next level is, is the command. Okay, I want this extension side. Boom, there it is. You know, and, and I think for the younger kids, when they're trying to learn fastballs, you know, and they get that, get that mindset of the fastball mindset, how early do you like to, uh, to try to teach kids to start spinning breaking balls and, and sort of getting that feel because, you know, it's, it's so important in today's game. Yeah, I think for me, I've never really been at that youth kind of level. Like I've always been college or above. So I don't know when is the right time to start spinning breaking balls. Um, I think I always see on Twitter, it's either Velo or it's Command or it's like, there's always these arguments, which one's better. And I I don't think it has to be that way. Um, Velocity is obviously important. Um, Every big leaguer throws. 93 to 100 um so it's definitely important if you want to get to that level i think command is important if you can't throw more than one pitch in the strike zone you you don't give yourself a chance um and the more pitches you can throw in the zone you're obviously giving yourself more and more chance to be successful so i don't think you have to pick one um i think both are super important um i think i know last year um in the minor leagues, there were teams that, that led minor league baseball, the top five in minor league baseball in, in strikeouts, but those teams were also pretty high in walks because you have young guys throwing at high velos, spinning breaking balls in any count, um, and that leads to those young guys. They traditionally don't have good command and control, so that they're striking out people because they have good stuff, but they're walking people because they can't throw in the zone consistently. So ultimately, you need to mix those two together and throw good stuff in the zone. Um, if you look at guys in today's game, DeGrom, Bueller, um, all those guys have the best stuff in the league, but they can also locate it and they know, they know where to locate it. Bueller knows that his fastball plays up in the zone um, and his breaking ball plays down in the zone. So he pitches that way. So I think for younger kids, it's, it's once you do start to develop that off-speed stuff, what is the best pitch for you? How can you throw it in the strike zone? And where should you locate it and why? I think having a plan, um, an individual plan as to how your stuff plays um, and then being able to practice that way and put it, put it in play during the week so that when you show up in games, you, you can locate, you know where to locate um, and what's going to give you the best chance for success. That's pretty, that's a, that's a good answer right there. And you definitely towed the line of, you know, stuff and command, you kind of stayed on, stayed the middle there. That was one of the questions I was going to hit you with at the end was what's more important stuff or command, but uh, you know, it's hard to pick one. And I think. Oh yeah. I mean, Velo probably is most important to get you a chance. Um, There's very few guys that throw 86 in the big leagues. So just purely looking at the numbers. Yeah. um, Velo, you need some Velo to get you there. But if you throw a hundred and you can't throw a strike, you're not going to pitch in the big leagues for long, but you probably stay around for a long time because you throw yeah. 100. So somebody's going to want to fix you and, and keep trying to fix you. Um, so it does give you more opportunities, for sure, throwing harder. Um, but if you look at all the guys that don't throw as hard, they have really, really, really good plus command. So it's either there's not one way of doing it. There's guys in the big leagues like Hendricks that are upper 80s but can throw it wherever he wants, whenever he wants, and any pitch and any count. And, 
and it moves it all over the place. And then there's guys like Jordan Hicks that throw 106 and have a wipeout slider. And like both of those play in the big leagues. Yeah. I think, yeah. It, I mean, I, I don't know why there's a huge argument over both. I, I understand that command only will not get you there, but velo only won't either. So it's got to be a mix. Um, you don't have to throw 100. You can throw 94 and spin two off-speed pitches and, and be a good big leaguer. Like, I think that gets lost in the Twitter world um, that it doesn't have to be one extreme or the other. You can be pretty good at both or, you know, I, I think that plays. And I think even having an identity too, like you kind of talked about for a little bit and, and kind of developing, you know, you know what, who you are. And for a lot of, for a lot of young kids, they, um, you're kind of just throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks. And I think, uh, you know, once you can kind of develop a sense of what you're good at and, and what you know gets hitters out, I think that can translate, you know, up all the way into the minor leagues and into the major leagues. And, you know, even jumping from a high school to a college, uh, you know, that every step you take, the hitters get better and better, um, you know, and spanning all the way up to the big leagues, like you – probably could throw, you know, and we talked about this a little bit in college was like, you know, the stuff, let's say you have a low nineties pitcher, uh, you know, you can probably go get a big league hitter out today, you know, like just sheer numbers, you throw fastball or slider. You've seen even college teams play, um, you know, big league rosters in spring training and, you know, they'll get the hitters out. So it's, it's more of having both that stuff in command in order to do that and developing it to where you know what you're good at. And so I, I think you said it really well where you got to have both and you got to be in the zone too with everything. It's funny. We, we talked about Liam Hendricks earlier. He's a guy that everybody thinks came out of nowhere. He spent like six or seven years in the minor leagues um, or and, and major leagues up and down with the Twins. And he was a very below average major league starter that was bouncing towards AAA and big leagues and up and down. and he had like a six seven ERA in the big leagues as a starter. And he threw four pitches, I think. He was like 88 to 92. Um, he used to try and throw two seams and sink the ball. And then he figured out that uh, I think it was the Blue Jays made him a reliever. And he figured out that as a reliever, the best thing he could do was throw the ball as hard as possible at the top of the zone. Um, and he kept he actually kept his two seam for a long time. And I was talking to him about this um, this offseason when I saw him in Australia. And I was like, have you changed anything? Like, what Like what made you an all-star pretty much? And he's like, well, I, I got rid of my two-seam. He's like, I, it just used to get crushed. So he's like, now I just try to throw as hard as I possibly can at the top of the zone and then throw my breaking ball off of that. And that's it. So he simplified stuff to two pitches. His stuff played up because he wasn't a starter anymore. Um, and it turned him into an all-star reliever just by simply eliminating two pitches um, and doing what he knows was best for him to get big league hitters out. That's, uh, that's an awesome story too, because I saw some video and it was, it was at the time last year where, where he had just got announced as an all-star and uh, you know, they were kind of running through his career and the velocity, like you said, even as a starter was, you know, low, high eighties, low nineties, that sort of stuff. Do you know if, if the velocity was sort of always there with him, you know, growing up and uh, you know, he said 2000, you know, whenever he was with the twins, you know, the velo wasn't quite there. And now I see, you see him blowing a hundred sometimes by guys. Was that kind of always there with him? And 
he always he always was like a high 80s low 90s type guy um but he's always super athletic like one of the most freak athlete kids i've ever been around and i think when he got away from being a starter and having to do that every five days um and throw 100 pitches and and try to like i think struggling in the big leagues too is so mentally just trained that he went and got bigger one off season. Um, he started working out differently. Um, he got stronger. He started throwing differently. And I think the velo was always there, but just making him a reliever and where he could just blow it out for an inning or two um, was what changed his career, I believe. I, I love that story. And, and listening to that interview that I was talking about, his accent is all <laughs> over the place too. Slight, yeah. kind of. It was, yeah. I, I was laughing. And then the announcers or, and whoever was interviewing him was having a fun, like they were having a blast with him. I think it was intentional talk like Malar and they yeah. were, <laughs> you don't yeah. have that I think accent. That's his, I think that's his nickname is Slido, but they spell it like S-L-I-D-A-H or something like that. <laughs> yeah, my accent's gone. I get made fun of it a lot when I go home or talk to somebody at home. Yeah, you're like an American now. It's, yeah. <laughs> so switching gears a little bit to the to the angels and, the, and sort of the minor league side of uh you know baseball i think it's sort of like unknown almost to the to the common baseball fan and and what minor league baseball is really like so if if you could just touch on a little bit of of kind of what uh what the journey has been with you with the angels and and kind of how you first jumped into the system yeah so i was actually um i had left st louis to take a Division two um, recruiting coordinator job at Lindenwood, um, which is in St. Charles, Missouri. And I was only there like four or five months, maybe not even that long, three or four months. Um, and I actually got a Twitter inbox message from some random angels like fan account or something. And it was like, hey, would you be interested in interviewing for a pitching coach job? And I was like, this is, I showed my wife and I was like, this is fake. <laughs> um, but I should just call the number, I guess, and, and see what happens. So I called the number and it was our farm director, uh, Michael Casa, um, and it was actually legitimate. So he, we talked for a little bit and said, are you interested? And I said, sure, I'd love to interview. Um, and I didn't hear from him for a while. So I texted him. It was probably two weeks. I hadn't heard anything. I texted him was like, hey, are we still going to do that interview? And he was like, let's touch base tomorrow at two. Um, so I figured it was just like, hey, let's touch base with him. So I called in that day and there was like 10 people on the call, uh, the big league pitching coach, the farm director, um, everybody you could think of was on the call. Wow. Uh, and I was not prepared at all, uh, but I guess it went well. So I ended up getting hired, uh, went to Orem, Utah, my first year, short season. Um, luckily there, they actually have two pitching coaches. So we have two pitching coaches in our AZL team and two pitching coaches in our short season team. Um, and there I was able to be with Michael Wirtz. Um, he's a big leaguer for a long time, seven or eight years with the Cubs in Oakland. Um, actually had one of the best breaking balls in the big leagues for a long time. Um, and he had been a pitching coach for a couple of years, three or four years now when uh, at the time. Um, he was huge for me. So being able to learn from him um, what to do, what not to do, uh, he kind of showed me the ropes. So he was awesome for me. We actually lived together during that season. So it was super helpful. Um, and then this past year, um, spent a year in the AZL, which was fun. Um, completely different environment, younger Latin kids, um, some scrappy baseball at times, some longer games, um, at times a lot of walks, a lot of errors, stuff like that. But it was, 
it was cool because it was a different environment. It was all about learning, um, not all about winning, um, teaching out guys every day and how to be professionals and what to do and what not to do. So um, that was cool. And then I was supposed to go to Burlington, Iowa this year. Um, I actually went to junior college at Southeastern, which is in Burlington, Iowa. So kind of going full circle back to where I went to school. Um, but we were a week and a half, two weeks into spring training and we got sent home and then we got a, a group phone call and got told to, to go home. So um, packed up and drove home and been here ever since. Uh, so we're, we're still working from home and trying to keep in touch with our players as much as possible and, and doing what we can until hopefully something starts again. And I love that story, though. Just you, you get a DM from probably a burner account of like yeah, really or something. And <laughs> so that, I'm going to keep an eye on, you know, if any of these random pages follow me or anything. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Yeah. And to think that it spanned all the way into a job and you get on the call and you get 17 people in your ear with <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. about pitching and stuff. That's pretty neat. And for it to come full circle, going back to Burlington, I think that'd be incredible. So I hope, I mean, who knows what this season's going to, going to bring and all that, but um, I think the AZL, the stuff that you were talking about with the, with, you know, you got all a lot of young players, you're sort of teaching them how to be a professional, you know, what, what that all means. Uh, you, do, you have, do you speak Spanish at all? Like, is that, uh, is there kind of a, a thing there where you got to communicate with some guys or? Yeah, I speak about 10 words. Um, it's something <laughs> I'm, I'm working on currently. Um, at Rosetta Stone, I just got a new Spanish baseball workbook that I'm trying to do. Um, it's hard. I think learning a language may be one of the hardest things you can do um, for me anyway. Um, it, it's, it's hard work. Um, it's funny though, because I probably get along way better than most of the Latin players than I do most of the English team players. Wow. Um, maybe it's because they can't hear what I'm saying, but uh, <laughs> no, they're fun. Um, they're really fun. We usually, if, I can say enough to have a conversation, um, but if it's something important, we'll get an interpreter. Um, we usually have a coach that speaks Spanish or um, someone in the weight room, or we can go get somebody. And if it's it's a serious conversation, we'll we'll bring someone in that speaks Spanish and go through them just to make sure that the message is clear. Yeah, no, I've, I've always uh, well really got exposure to it in in college with stuff at Maine. We had a couple guys that speak Spanish, or you know, from Florida or or Cuban, Dominican, that sort of stuff. And, um, you know, being in Maine, there's more Canadians up here than there is, you know, Spanish speakers. Yeah. So um, it, it's crazy that, you know, you get into professional baseball and it's almost like, you know, you, you said with the AZL, you got half the guys, you know, coming from Latin America and this is their first time in the, in the United States. And I think you probably have a pretty good connection point with those guys saying like, Hey, look, I came from one side of the world to, to come into Arizona and playing baseball. And, um, you know, I'm sure it brings some comfort to them too, that knowing, you know, there's, there's guys on their side. And I think that I'm sure every organization is different with, with how they handle, you know, 16 year old players coming over and all that sort of stuff. But um, just in general, you know, is, is a lot of the development that you see pitchers, this could be just in general, doesn't have to be specific to the angels. Um, you see a lot of the stuff on the lower level minor leagues that the guys just need to get stronger, you know, more time in the weight room. Like what's kind of a, a general, you know, thought that you see from, from minor league guys in the lower levels? Yeah, it's, it's a combination of, for most of them, getting in the weight room. Um, some of the 17, 16, 17, 18 year old kids, um, especially from the Latin countries, um, getting them over here, teaching them how to lift, um, 
what to do, what not to do, protein shakes, um, how to eat. Um, so something we do that's really cool during the AZL season is um, all the coaches actually go to the apartments where the kids live, um, and we will teach them how to clean, how to cook, um, how to store their, their meat. Like we'll go in and there's sometimes like raw chicken in the, the freezer, and we're like, hey, you can't do that. So just teaching them in general like like how to be adults and how to be professional and how to clean your apartment and, and make sure they don't get fined for, for doing anything in their apartment, like breaking stuff or anything like that. So you kind of forget um, where some of these kids are coming from. Um, and it's not just the Latin kids at all. A lot of the, the other kids have never lived on their own. Um, some of them are drafted right out of high school. They've never been to college. They've never, they've ne literally never lived anywhere but their mom's house. So teaching them how to cook, stuff like that. We like to make sure that our players know we care about them um, and we actually teach them life lessons at the same time. Um, pitching wise, it's, it's weight room, it's throwing program, how to do it, um, what not to do, how many days you can do it. And just some of them don't have an idea of why they do anything. Um, they just do it because that's how they've always done it. Um, some guys have a really good idea of what they're doing um, and they like it and it's successful and, and we let them do that. Um, we have a lot of freedom um, in our throwing program. Um, but yeah, with those young kids, it's just a matter of, of helping them figure out who they are, what's best for them, how they should pitch, how to maximize what they already do well. Um, all of them are there for a reason. Uh, they got drafted or signed for a reason, and it's just trying to maximize that talent that the scouts saw initially. That's pretty neat. I, I didn't know... Uh you know about the program you know like you guys get to kind of teach them you'd be the life coach along with the pitching coach and yeah you, you, see, you see some stuff so <laughs> <laughs> i can't even imagine going in some apartments like yeah. uh, you know even just college dorms and all that i got to see a little bit of it and for me like uh you know everybody's it seemed like people are playing MLB the show all the time, you know, you got everything everywhere. So I'm sure you got uh, some <laughs> shock to the system, you yeah. know, all these guys in their places. Yeah. For the most part, they're pretty good. They just don't, some of them just don't know. Um, so just, just teaching them is huge. Yeah. And, and you get them more comfortable, you know, at home, they can come to the field ready to go. And I think too, like, um, you know, other teams are, I saw something with the Dodgers and, you know, other minor league systems are, are providing some some better food for, for the minor leaguers. And, uh, you know, if, if they want things to translate all the way up to the big league level, you know, you got to take care of, got to take care of the minor leaguers. And one, one question that I sort of had was uh, what's a typical like spring training day. Like, you know, if it's a, if it's a game day, I know it's going to be different, but um, you know, can you kind of take me through like a, a simulated spring training day or, or sort of what that's like either from a player or coach's side, whatever, whatever you can come up with. Yeah. For like early on, um, it's different than when the games start um, early on, it'll be, um, we'll have some meetings and stuff like that. And then it'll be um, usually just playing catch early. Um, we may do some other stuff, some PFPs or something like that, um, or have some stations that we roll through early. Uh, and then once we get the bullpens rolling, uh, it's a it's a a full system going on. We usually break into groups, and you go from from a a, a warm up group to a to a plyo group to a band group to a bullpen group to a, a recovery group to the weight room. So it's there's coaches stationed at all these groups, and we kind of just roll through it. And we do that for a while, um, 
until all our guys have started to build up their bullpens and get ready for the games. And then on a game day, um, you may have two groups or something, one one group that's playing that day and another group that's not. Um, the group that's playing will we'll get their work in and go to the game, and the group that's not uh, will stay behind and do some other stuff. So um, that's pretty much how it goes for most of the spring. Yep. So I'm sure it gets uh, gets monotonous for the coaches and, and all that sort of stuff. But uh, it's kind of the getting you solidify that routine sort of in spring training and then uh, kind of translates over into into that full season. And and I think for a lot of guys, just as just a guess from the outside that uh, kind of those routines and, and sort of the different stuff they might pick up with the recovery groups and, you know, uh, different plyos and all that sort of stuff you guys try to keep it as similar as you can roll into the season? We do. We try to try to get guys to figure out um, what they need individually and then carry that over to the season. So every guy has a, an individual program when it comes to plyos or bands or throwing or what they do um, pre and post game. Yeah. And, and finding what you like too is, is important as a pitcher. Like uh, there's not one drill that's going to be perfect for everyone. There's not going to be one, um, you know, uh, something that comes to my head. Some people might love towel drills and some people might love, you know, a, a roll and throw or a different plyo drill or something that they like. So it, it finding the balance of, of what's going to get you ready to go for the day of throwing and what you like to, you know, feel in your mechanics and that sort of stuff, like, uh, is, is something big. I know at least for the kids that I'm teaching and, and even throughout college, uh, a lot of the philosophies with the pitching coaches that I had were, you know, kind of find those couple of keys that you like in your mechanics that you know, like, you know, when I'm at my best, you know, I feel this, this, and this. Is that something uh, that you're kind of on board with too? I kind of like, this is kind of me checking myself here if <laughs> with a, a, a pro coach here. Is that sort of something oh, you like? For sure. I think it's all about having awareness of your body and some guys have better awareness than others. Um, <laughs> and that's really what we're all trying to do is, is help guys gain better awareness of what they do when they're good. Um, some guys already know. Um, some guys have no idea. Some guys are close. Um, and all the drills and everything that we do is to help the guys find out um, what they do well when they're going good um, and having that self-awareness. Because at the end of the day, they're the one out on the mound. Nobody's coming to save them when they're out there. And the quicker they can make adjustments, the better they're going to be. And the pitchers that you see that struggle and continue to struggle, they're the ones that can't make the quick adjustments. Um, they're the guys that throw 35 pitches in an inning. They're the guys that miss up and away over and over and over and over, and they, they can't make those quick adjustments. Um, so for us as coaches, it's trying to give them information to make those adjustments as quickly as possible. Um, and that may be a drill, that may be a mental cue, that may be – something they say to themselves, um, something that they always go back to. Um, and it's trying to figure that out and figuring that out is a lot harder than it sounds. Yeah. And everybody's different. And like you said, everybody's awareness of what their arms doing and what their body's doing. And, and that's sort of the hardest part is, you know, you could watch a video and you, I, this is for me personally, I saw, you know, a hundred videos of myself and I'm like, man, I didn't, feel like I was doing any of that you know like I didn't think I was driving off the mound at all and here I am on video like doing a squat on the mound you know that's the whole thing you could you can't even tell like the feel isn't 
sometimes real with what's actually going on. So um, that's good to hear you say that too. And, and sort of like, you know, find what, find what works for you and, and roll with it. So for sure. I, uh, that's kind of, it's kind of all I got scheduled here for the, for the podcast. Like, you know, just tried to hit on um, whatever we could as far as, you know, we got a little bit of coaching. We got Australian baseball. We got Liam Hendricks in there for a minute. Um, you know, I see you got Kansas City Chiefs in the background. We already we already talked about how yeah, the Patriots fans, so we won't talk about it. But I yeah. guess the Chiefs fans can talk about it now. So yeah, they see the things would have been different if <laughs> things would always be different if the Patriots were there. But they, uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be a weird season coming up with all that. We 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 don't need to get into that too much. But <laughs> I think I think this was a good time. I, I enjoyed it, and I think uh, you know people got to got a good listen, some good laughs in there, hopefully with uh, just some of the stories along the way. So thank you for coming on and I appreciate the time. No problem. It was fun. I appreciate it.